this time I invite you to take out your Bibles and turn to Isaiah chapter 36. If you're using a pew Bible, that can be found on page 596. Isaiah 36, and I'll begin reading in verse 13 to the end of the chapter. Hear the word of the Lord. Then the Rabshakeh stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah, Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, The Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, Make your peace with me and come out to me. Then each one of you will eat of his own vine and each one of his own fig tree and each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern until I come and take you away to a land like your own, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Beware, lest Hezekiah mislead you by saying, The Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharim? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their lands out of my hand, that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? But they were silent and answered him not a word, for the king's command was, Do not answer him. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of the Rabshakeh. This is God's word. Give your, your Bibles open at these two chapters, 36 and 37 of Isaiah. For those of you who follow the structure of the book, this is only the second time in Isaiah where we have a shift from prophecy to history. The first time was back in chapter 6 where Isaiah has a vision of God in the temple. Chapter 7 where he has a confrontation with Ahaz, who is Hezekiah's father. And uh, at that point, the issue was what you did with the Syrian Israel alliance to the north, and the solution was to come up with a link with Assyria, which was a rising power at that point. Here in chapters 36 and 37, we've fast-forwarded to the days of Ahaz's son Hezekiah, and here the problem is that Assyrian power has grown great, and little Judah has decided it will rebel against Assyrian power and link up with Egypt and Egypt has been a no-show, and Hezekiah is left, as it were, on his own. Now, the lesson of the chapter, I think, is twofold. First of all, that the way of faith is not a soft option, and that the expression of faith is never constant in the life of the believer. It is liable to ebb and flow. Certainly, faith is the big uh, idea, really, that drives the story or the messages of Isaiah to his people in the previous chapters. 
And you'll find that that's the theme in this chapter here. If you look at verse 5, for example, chapter 36, verse 5, you have this set-piece confrontation between a representative of King Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, and King Hezekiah's men, uh, the king of Judah. And the representative of Sennacherib says to the king of Judah, On what do you rest this trust of yours? Whom, in whom do you now trust? In whom do you now trust? It, it is not a friendly question. It is a sharp-edged question. It comes as a challenge from a foreign king to the believing king of Judah. It comes in a variety of shapes and forms, but you may have heard this coming from a colleague or a family member or a friend when something has gone wrong in your life. You've had a bad diagnosis. You may have lost your job or failed to get that promotion or a relationship has turned sour. And effectively what they're asking at that point is, in whom do you now trust? It was all right to trust in God when things were going well, but now things are going badly. Are you trusting Him now? They ask that question, don't they, when our faith shows signs of being shaky. It's the kind of question that's asked by the elites when they produce yet another TV program discovering yet another lost Gnostic gospel and think it challenges the Christian message. It's the kind of question that an atheistic scientist might effectively answer, ask when trying to confront you with the approved and uh, the infallible findings of science falsely so-called. It is the kind of question that a skeptic asks when a high-profile believer acts badly or their friend who is a believer becomes depressed or is stressed out by circumstances. In whom do you now believe? Where is that trust of yours? On what do you now rest this trust of yours? The question may come to you, it may have already come to you this week that is past. It may come with a look of pity, with a tone of mockery, with a pretense of sensitivity, or with a touch of hostility. But its purpose is always to do the same thing. It is to unsettle you. It is to destabilize you. It is to make you wonder about your faith and about the object of your faith. Let me put this in its context. Verse 1 of chapter 36 places us in the year 701 B.C. It is the 14th year of King Hezekiah and Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, has come up against all the fortified cities of Judah. It was total war against Judah. By this point, he's captured over 200,000 people, and he is now moving his war machine as an avalanche against the royal city. Hezekiah is trapped in his city. In fact, we've discovered an ancient Assyrian document that talks about Hezekiah being, quote, a prisoner in Jerusalem like a bird in a cage. This is a time of crisis for little Judah. 
Already Assyria has grown in power. Already by this stage, the ten tribes of Israel to the north have vanished from the pages of history, and they will never be reclaimed. That is the situation that faces little Judah. It is the rump of Israel that is left. And in this, these two chapters, there are three main characters and two subsidiary characters. There is Sennacherib, the emperor of Assyria, Hezekiah, the king of Judah, and the Lord, who is the maker and shaker of the universe. The two subsidiary characters are the Rabshakeh and the prophet Isaiah. The Rabshakeh, who is a kind of ambassador figure who conveys the words of the king of Assyria, and Isaiah, who is an ambassador for the king of kings and conveys the words of the Lord. And here's how the action moves, so you know where we're going. First of all, Sennacherib speaks to Hezekiah about the Lord. Secondly, Hezekiah speaks to the Lord about Sennacherib. And thirdly, the Lord speaks to Hezekiah about Sennacherib and its curtains for him. That's where we're going, but we're not there yet. So let's back up then and look at those three movements of the drama. First, I want you to listen to the voice of reason as Sennacherib speaks to Hezekiah about the Lord. We have the background painted in verse 2 and verse 3. It is a fact that King Sennacherib had come against all the fortified cities of Judah. Next time you're in London, England, you should go to the British Museum, and there you will find part of a relief, a wall relief, from a huge room in Sennacherib's royal palace at Nineveh. It was a depiction of the king of Assyria on his throne, a portable throne, in his camp outside the Judean city of Lake Lachish. The Lachish room in the royal palace in Nineveh had this inscription, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, sitting on his Nimuda throne while the spoil of the city of Lachish passes before him. Now he had an, a Lachish room in which he depicted his victory over one of the greatest cities of Judah. I think Sennacherib's goal was to have a Jerusalem room that would depict the story of his victory over Jerusalem, depict the booty being taken from the temple. But he never got to get a Jerusalem room in his palace in Nineveh. But this tells us how he planned to get it. He came with his army and he stood, his men stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. It's a rerun, really, of what you find back in chapter 7 of Isaiah. When Isaiah found King Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, out in the very same spot, checking the defenses, seeing that there would be enough water into the city in case of siege, and putting his confidence <clears throat> not, in, uh, not in his God, but rather in his own ability to make sure everything was going to work out in the end. Now it's the same place. Now it's the Assyrian. Just as Ahaz had gone to Assyria to help him instead of going to the Lord, 
Now Assyria is there coming back to bite the royal family and Jerusalem. And through his representative, the Rabshakeh, Sennacherib conveys the message to the king of Judah. Look at this in verses 4 and 5. Say to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, On what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? He goes on to argue that really all that they had done up to this point was utter foolishness. Hezekiah, who was a believing man, we, we know, had made a big mistake in his life in a moment of weakness. He had decided that the only way to get out of the fist, the tight fist of Assyria, was to rebel against her and to make an alliance with Egypt. He'd done that. Egypt was a no-show, and right here in verse 6, he is mocked by Sennacherib's messenger as having failed by trusting in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff that left him with splinters in his hands rather than support. Hezekiah had failed. But he wasn't a total failure. Like so many of us, our obedience to God in our daily lives is a mixture of obedience and disobedience, of faithfulness and faithlessness. And Hezekiah had done a good thing. You see, when his father Ahaz had made that alliance with the Assyrians, part of the deal of getting Assyrian help way back in, in the day was that Ahaz would superintend the erection of a, a kind of church growth movement within Judah in which they would plant churches on every high place in the nation and it would be decreed that from now on the religion was going to be more ecumenical than it had been before. They were going to worship the God of Israel, but they were also going to worship along with the God of Israel, the gods of Assyria as well. And that had happened, and Israel had gone from bad to worse, believing in idolatry. And then Hezekiah came along, and God was working in Hezekiah's heart, and Hezekiah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, and he had introduced a spiritual reformation in Judah. It was far-reaching. He intended to remove all of the foreign gods. He broke down all of those shrines and sanctuaries and churches that involved the worship of the gods of Assyria. And he focused everything on the temple of Jerusalem where they worshipped the Lord God. So, you see, when the representative of Sennacherib comes to the king, and it's outside the city walls with everybody on the walls listening to what he's saying. He challenges the actions of King Hezekiah. He says to them, look at verse 7, If you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? Think about it for a moment. What has Zechariah taught you? What has he been saying to you? He's been saying to you, you should worship the Lord God alone. Think about what it was like before that policy. You are worshiping the Lord God and the gods of Assyria. What was it like then? You were safe. You were secure. 
your fortified cities were okay. But now that you're trusting in the Lord God of Israel alone, guess what? The armies of the gods of Assyria have taken over the hinterland and the main body of the land of Judah, and here you are boxed up in your little Jerusalem at our mercy. Think about it. Who was right? Was it Hezekiah with his saying, you must trust the Lord alone? Or is it us with our armies parked outside your front door telling you that you put your eggs into the wrong basket? Here you are saying you trust in the Lord and yet here's your king. He's been shutting down churches all over the land. That doesn't look like church growth to us. Doesn't look like your religion is going anywhere to us. It looks like Hezekiah's reformation was a disaster. And then he turns to psychological warfare. Doesn't the success of Assyria demonstrate how powerless Judah's God really is? He offers them a deal. He says, the Assyrians will give you 2,000 horses if you can produce the riders for those horses. It's kind of military one-upmanship. We will give you, we'll give you 2,000 F-17s if you can produce the pilots for them. Well, who's going to do that? 2,000 pilots or F-17s. They don't have anybody who can ride these war horses. It was a slap in the face. It was a demonstration of their inability. It was rhetoric aimed at demoralizing the people of Judah. And then he goes for the jugular. He has an ace up his sleeve in verse 10. Moreover, is it without the Lord that I have come up against this land? That's your Lord, that I've come up against this land to destroy it. The Lord said to me, here's this Rabshakeh, speaking on behalf of King Sennacherib, and he's saying to the people of Judah, the Lord told me, some Christian people today are always the Lord's telling them to do this, that, and the other thing. Like the man who came up to Mr. Spurgeon and said, the Lord's told me that I should preach here in the tabernacle next Sunday. Spurgeon said to him, no, you're not, because the Lord hasn't told me. <laughs> well, here's, here's this man representing Sennacherib, and he comes up to the people and he says, here's the thing. Didn't the Lord tell me this is what would happen? He's recalling the language of Isaiah. Isaiah had been warning them that Assyria would come down and that Assyria would take over the hinterland. He's being selective in what Isaiah had said, but he's using Isaiah's words, which they'd heard him say, against Isaiah and against their trust in God. And he's saying, this is it. didn't you know this is what we were going to do? The Lord told me that we're to come here and do what we're doing to you. It's a classic study of how to twist the truth just enough to make a point while sowing seeds of doubt and uncertainty in the hearts and minds of the people. Verses 11 and 12, Zechariah's, Hezekiah's men <coughs> knew this. They, they come to the Rabshakeh and they say, would you please turn down the volume? Would you please talk to us not in Hebrew, which... The people understand, but in Aramaic, you know, we'd rather you did that rather than, because they're listening. Those people in the walls are hearing what you're saying and it's demoralizing them. So what does he do? Verse 13, the Rabshakeh stood up and he called out in a loud voice. 
in the language of Judah. Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he is not able to deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, the Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hands of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah. It is a determined attempt to get the people to throw away their trust in the Lord by blowing their own trumpet, by distorting the truth, and by rubbishing the God of Judah. You see, Hezekiah had been urging the people to trust the Lord. Here, the Rabshakeh tells them not to trust the promises of God. And he argues. Now he, he throws another argument into the line here. He says this to them. All you need to do is to open the gates, let us come in, or you come out to us, and guess what? You'll be able to go home tonight and have tea on your patio, and it will be fine. You'll have a great evening and so on. And then when you do come with us, we'll take you to a land that looks a little bit like the Garden of Eden, verse 17. It's a beautiful land where you'll have your own land, like your own land, with grain and wine, a land of bread and, of bread and vineyards. You'll have a good life. You'll never have it so good. Total abundance, luxurious lifestyle back in Assyria where we came from. How can you lose? You see, the world will always look for a fault line in the life and thinking of even godly people. We believers are justified, but we're also still sinners. And sometimes doing the right thing doesn't immediately pay off, and so the devil uses that. Satan uses that. This is the voice of Satan using the Word of God back at these people in order to destabilize them, in order to, by skewing the Word of God just slightly, in order to rob them of their confidence in God. Here's the voice of reason. And the voice of reason sounds very reasonable. But then secondly, I want you to listen to the voice of faith as Hezekiah speaks to the Lord about Sennacherib. This is, in fact, going to be Hezekiah's finest hour. That's not to say that he was perfect. We know he was imperfect. He was a believer, but you, like you and me, he believed one minute, he disbelieved the next. That's the way it is. Faith and doubt go together, and this man is a mixture of faith and doubt. He is like you and like me. And what happens is that by the end of chapter 36, uh, his men come to see him. They tell him everything that the Rabshakeh has said. And as soon as King Hezekiah, verse 1 of chapter 37, heard it, he tore his robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and went into the house of the Lord. He took it very seriously. The tearing of the robes was, uh, and the putting on of sackcloth and ashes, that's what all that was about, taking something very seriously. It was also an indication of repentance. It was a display, public display of repentance. And he goes into the house of the Lord. He goes to the temple. We don't have an equivalent to the temple today. We have no holy buildings that carry the same power as temples, not even cathedrals, not even a pretty church like ours has the same effect. The day the church is the gathering of God's people. Ephesians says the gathered church is a holy temple in the Lord, made up of living stones, as Peter puts it. When the church is gathered, we're in a temple because the church is the temple of the Lord, and we're part of that temple that God is building 
in the world. That's where we meet with God today. We meet with God especially when we are with God's people. That doesn't mean you don't meet with Him personally and privately, but normally and normatively when we are together with God's people. What does Hezekiah do? He, first of all, he listens to the Word of God. We're told that he sends for the prophet, the prophet Isaiah, verse 2. He sent his secretary, his chief priests, covered with sackcloth to the prophet Isaiah. The, the fact that the expression the prophet is there is underlining his office. That's why he sends for him. He is a prophet of God, Isaiah. And he is the means by which God speaks to Israel at that point in their history. And as he goes to Isaiah, sends to Isaiah with the message, he is quite straight with him. Verse 3, this is a day of distress, of rebuke, and of disgrace. The crisis is so great. Their resources are so small. It all seems so hopeless. But this was the real concern he had. He goes on to say this, They have come to mock the living God. Hezekiah puts himself in the position of, of David, his predecessor, his forefather. And he remembers the day that Goliath, you remember, came as a representative of the Philistines and mocked Israel's army and Israel's God. And he says, this man represents Sennacherib who has come to mock the armies of Israel and the living God who stands behind those armies. He sends this to Isaiah. And he says in verse 4, I'm bringing this to you. Because it may be, it may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of the Rabshakeh and rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Now you see, by sending for Isaiah the king, he's doing the right thing. He's recognizing the prophet's office as the spokesman of God. He's doing the equivalent that we do today of going to church, listening to the word of God read and preached. We want to hear the word of the Lord. And he hears the word of the Lord. Isaiah says to him, say to your master, verse 6, Thus says the Lord, don't be afraid because of the words you've heard, with which the young men of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him, so that he will hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. Isaiah offers very specific promises. Ones that would prove that he was a prophet of God and not an imposter. And do you notice that whereas the king is saying on the one hand, it may be that the Lord your God will hear, Isaiah in his message says, Thus says the Lord your God, do not be afraid of what you've heard. In other words, as Ralph Davis says, Isaiah is not into perhapses or it may be. He's into certainties. He's into certainties. He listens to the Word of God. And then he calls on the name of the Lord. Uh, another message comes from Sennacherib's corner. 
Verse 10, do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. He's heard the message that Isaiah preached. Have the gods of the nations delivered them, the nations that my fathers destroyed. It's the voice of reason creeping in again. Look at the other nations. They had their gods. They've been destroyed. Their gods were nothing. Do you think your God is any different? The world is always looking for ways to undermine the believer's faith in God. And that's the taunt. That's the threat that drives Hezekiah in chapter 37 to his knees. He received the message from the hands of his messengers, and he read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. He spread the letters of threat before the Lord. That's the equivalent to our making our requests known to the Lord, Philippians 4. This is the same as our coming and casting our burden on the Lord, knowing that He cares for us in 1 Peter. Helplessness becomes prayer the moment you go to Jesus and speak candidly and confidently with Him about your needs. He goes to the house of the Lord to pray. That's important, that place of prayer. Private prayer is good. Personal prayer is good. Prayer together with the people of God in the house of God is best. It is best with the saints present to shore you up, to hold your hand, to keep you going. He comes to the house of God to build up the confidence of a wobbling faith in his heart and his people around him. And it is a magnificent prayer. This is verse 14. Into verse 15, Hezekiah prayed to the Lord. He lifts his focus to God. He begins with God. He ends with God. He lifts up God in his mind and his heart and with his speech. He begins, O Lord of hosts. That is the great God of armies. The God who is able to assemble the armies of angels and archangels in their innumerable multitude and bring them at a moment onto the scene. The God of hosts whom Elisha's servant saw when he saw the armies of Syria surrounding the house of the prophet and the prophet prays for him, open his eyes, and he looks and behold, the horsemen and chariots of Israel, the armies of God, Surrounding the people of God. He goes to God and he starts off. This is what I know. I know however much the armies of Assyria may be, however great they may be, however numerous they may be, you are the Lord of armies, the Lord of might, the Lord of power, the almighty God for whom nothing is impossible. The Lord of hosts. And this warrior God is the God of Israel. You're the God who has covenanted yourself to Israel. The God who has covenanted yourself, promised yourself, sworn by yourself that you are our God. You will be God to us, whatever the circumstances, the God of Israel. You are the God, he says. You alone are enthroned above the cherubim. He's thinking of the eternal throne of God, which is described, you remember, by, Isaiah, by Ezekiel, 
as surrounded by the angels of God serving him, these great creatures, far greater in power and, and strength and beauty than we humans are, these creatures that serve God day and night, surrounded by them. But he's thinking not only of the heavenly throne of God, he's thinking of the earthly throne of God. He's in the temple behind the curtain. A curtain that will be torn when Jesus is dying at Calvary. Behind the curtain is a wooden box overlaid with gold in which are the Ten Commandments and on the top of which are two great cherubim made out of pure gold with their wings carved and meeting together in the center. And on the plain surface, invisible, the throne of the invisible God. And on that plain surface, the mercy seat, the blood of the sacrifice was sprinkled, every day of atonement sprinkled, to reconcile the people to God. He's thinking of a great God who has great power but who is reconciled to his people. All Hezekiah could do was tear his robes in repentance. But his torn robes of repentance were his reaching forward to a day when the curtain that separated him from the immediate presence of God would be torn by God so that men and women might approach God and come near to Him by the blood of Christ. Hezekiah comes to a God of intense presence, sovereign sway, massive power, a God who in one sentence is near and vast and mighty, a God who is accessible and sovereign and able, he comes to a God who reigns and that for whom there is nothing too hard. And there is nothing to make the child of God lose hope. He is not a distant deity. He is the ruler of all things because he's the maker of all things. I want you to notice this is how you should start praying. Remind yourself who it is you are speaking to. Use Bible language. That's the language God gives you to use when you come to God in worship. I miss, I don't miss very much of my growing up years, but one of the things I miss is a Wednesday night prayer meeting in our church. And I used to go along when I was about the only person under 60 that was there. Nothing wrong with those who are over 60, of course, but I was the only one under 60, I think, who was there. And I used to love listening to these people pray. They knew God. And they knew God in the terms that God had given. Their, their prayers were just full of the Bible. They were just full of allusions to the Bible, quotations from the Bible, descriptions from the Bible, words from the Bible, language from the Bible, the very words and language God has given to us to use when we are speaking back to Him. And what that meant was, by the time we thought about who God was, and we came then to bring our petitions to Him. What we were worried about, what we were concerned about, whether it was Uncle Jimmy's sore toe, or Mary who'd had a bad diagnosis, 
Our old uncle, what's his name, Henry, who was dying, whatever it was, seemed to be dealable with. I'm an American now, I can make up words. You do it all the time. You can make it, it can be dealt with because God is so great, so strong and so mighty, which is the only chorus they know in our Sunday school. He is great and strong and mighty. Do you see, prayer becomes first of all an act of adoration. It's not that our problems are unimportant. It's just that they need to be put in perspective. We need to adore the majesty and the mystery of God. I need Him to be the object of my prayer so that my, I will surrender my will to His will. My mind will change in light of His mind. My desires will be purified in His presence. And do you notice, at no point in this whole prayer does he argue even for a hint of argument for Judah's rights. He cries to the Lord, verse 17, Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. He's not, he's not blind to reality. Look at verse 18. He says, Truly, Lord, what they say is right. The kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire because they were no gods but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. What he's doing is saying to God is this. They've been, done, they've been there, done that. They've got all the evidence. They've got their lakish room celebrating their great victory over all of these gods. But, oh God, they've never actually met a real God. They've never met the only God there is in the universe. They've never come against you. And oh God, wouldn't it be wonderful if Assyria, which has laid waste to all these other countries and destroyed all their God and godlets, should come up against the God of Israel and get creamed. What a witness that would be to the world. That's how he's arguing. So now, O Lord God, save us from the hand of all the kingdoms of the earth. May know that you are God alone. You're the only one there is. The only God there is. It's your name, your reputation, and your glory. Here's a challenge to our prayers. What do we sound like when we're praying? Do our prayers sound like a list of body parts? As we spell out to God in great detail our friends' ailments, do we really need to tell God precisely how the procedure Mrs. So-and-so is going to be having on Thursday? Does he need to know that detail? Does he need to know that the boil was lanced and the pus went all over the place? I mean, we do give God a lot of detail that he really does not need to know. I think he knows what the procedure is going to be. What are we doing in our prayers? Are we praying like believers? Are we bringing to him our concern for the person of God, the honor of God and his reputation in the world, so that when I pray about an illness or a job loss or some other challenge facing me, 
I'm getting beyond merely wanting to talk about getting better or getting a resolution to the point where God is glorified. We bear up under the pressure. We endure suffering in a way that's godly and that we die for Jesus. Is my preoccupation his name, his kingdom, and his will? The voice of reason wants to undermine your faith. The voice of faith flies to God. Prayer is the great hallmark of faith. Do you know that? Jesus said that over and over again. We must always pray and not lose heart. The words, of course, are used sometimes by Christians as a way of revealing where their heart really is. When you say we should pray about that. Of course we should. We should pray about that. But this is what we need to do. This is a strategy we should adopt. This are, these are the, the procedures that we must follow. These are the steps we must take. These are the action points. Oh, of course we'll pray. But this is what we're focused on. Let me just tell you how I see the church in the world today, in the Western world. All we think about are the action points. And prayer is relegated to a perfunctory action that is never central to the life of the church. And what prayers we have are so childish sometimes and so lacking the big picture of God's glory in the world. Maybe I'm just talking about myself. But that's how I see it. But there's a third voice to hear. And it's the voice of sovereignty because it's the voice of the Lord speaking to Hezekiah about Sennacherib. The Lord always gets the last word, verse 21. Then Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Because you have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria, this is the word the Lord has spoken concerning him. I want you to notice this. Prayer does not change things. Heresy. Prayer lays hold of the God who changes things. It lays hold of God. And because someone has prayed, God steps in and changes the course of history. Does that alarm you? Does that suggest that perhaps God is at our beck and call? Does that threaten his sovereignty? No, not at all. Here's the scenario. God ordains whatsoever comes to pass. Everything is ordained by God. God ordains that his will in the world will be accomplished as he catches up his people and gives them the pleasure and privilege of being part of the action by prayer. God ordains what he's going to do. He commands that his people pray. And then he does what he was going to do in answer to their prayers. Why does he do that? To build up your faith. Not because he needs your prayers, because you need your prayers. 
You need to hear the answer to your prayers. You need to see the answer to your prayers. That's the way God works. He makes us partners. Heidelberg Catechism puts it like this. Why is prayer necessary for Christians? Because one, it is the chief part of the gratitude that God requires of us. And two, because God will give His grace and His Holy Spirit only to those who sincerely beseech Him in prayer without ceasing and who thank Him for these gifts. In other words, God wants to give you His grace and His Holy Spirit, but He wants you to ask for it. He wants you to receive it by prayer. He wants you to know that He's real, that He answers prayer for grace and for the Spirit. Well, I want you to listen a bit more to this answer that God gives. Because what God does for the word that God gives for concerning Sennacherib. So Sennacherib is now in the firing line. This is what God says to him. Verse 22, concerning Jerusalem. She despises you. She scorns you. That is the virgin daughter of Zion. Despises and scorns you, Sennacherib. She wags her head behind you. She makes faces behind your back. The daughter of Jerusalem does this. The one you have mocked and reviled against whom you have raised your voice and lifted up your eyes to the heights against the Holy One of Israel. God is saying that His own people are going to treat their enemies with utter contempt. That His own people will in the end of the day see the real issues at stake. What they are saying, what they are doing when they despise the church of God is they are against the Holy One of Israel. Here was this man, Sennacherib, who believed his rise to power was unstoppable. Like the people who built the Titanic, which to date is the largest movable man-made object ever built. They built it so well, they said, so that God Himself could not sink this ship. And so Sennacherib boasted in his invincible greatness. He was great in his own eyes. He led his armies through state after state, humbling nations, tearing down cities, stripping kings of their rights, taking away their booty, building rooms to memorialize his conquests. And yet, there at the gates of Jerusalem, having 200,000 Jewish people in captivity, having demolished all the fortified cities of Judah, Verse 26 says, All you have done is what I determined long ago. All you have accomplished is what I planned from days of old and what now I bring to pass, that you should make fortified cities crash into heaps of ruin. This man... Sennacherib is brought face to face with the predestinating plan of God who has determined and planned from of old. All his boasted victories that he thought were his own doing were in fact God-given 
Ultimately, he has done nothing independently or unobserved by the Almighty. Verse 28, I know you're sitting down. I know you're going out. I know you're coming in. I know you're raging against me. Everything. I know everything about you. I determine everything about you. Predestination. All his achievements come crashing against the wall of God's predestination. Predestination is the wall against which all human pretensions crash. It is also a pillow on which the believer may rest their head in a time of crisis. And predestination is a rock on which a believer might stand as we aim our prayers towards heaven and we say, Your name be hallowed, Your kingdom come, Your will be done. We know, we know that name will survive all other names. That the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. We know that kingdom will in the end overcome all the kingdoms of this world. We know that that will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We stand on the ground of God's predestination, God's grace. God says to this man, your days are over. The proud boasting was to be cut short. God will break him. Verse 29, like someone breaks in a wild horse and then leads it home exhausted. I will put my hook in your nose, my bit in your mouth. I will turn you back on the way by which you came. And it's all over, bar the shouting. And Isaiah slips in two little records here so that the people will know that he is a prophet of God. He gives a specific prophecy what will happen in the next three years that will be accomplished for them. And he gives a foreknote of what will happen in 20 years' time when Sennacherib will be assassinated by one of his sons. It's all in the Bible. It's the Word of God. And what God is going to do, he tells us in verse 33, he's going to do for his own honor. Let me read it to you. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return. And he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. For all his petty plans, God plans his purposes around his servant David. Now, that is, by the way, a key text in the whole of Isaiah that brings together the two great threads of the book, or two of the great threads of the book. In the first book that we've been studying, it's the book of the king. This one who is descended from David, who obtains David's throne, the government's on his shoulders, but he has divine titles, this divine human king who's coming. A kind of David the second. He's human, but divine. 
And then in part two of the book, God is going to send his servant who will be despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, crucified, dead, buried. In this text, Isaiah brings those two strands together. He identifies that the suffering servant who is to come will also be the David who will reign. He's talking about the Messiah. He's talking about Jesus. He's talking about the one who is the hinge of history. The divine king and righteous servant of the Lord. Everything will become clearer once he comes onto the scene. The voice of sovereignty declares God has predestined all that truly comes to pass. Well, here's the issue then, isn't it? The issue is faith. Faith is always facing challenges. And in Luke chapter 18, Jesus wondered on one occasion in his humanity, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? You read the context. He's talking about prayer. He's talking about prayer. What is the great feature of the church today? We are not a praying church. I'm talking about the church in general, in America, in the West and North. We are not a praying people. We are a doing people. We are an active people. But we're not a praying people. And the breath of faith is prayer. When the Holy Spirit's encouraging a man called Ananias that the arch persecutor and killer of Christians has just been converted and wants to prove it, the Holy Spirit says to Ananias, Behold, he's praying. He's praying. Chief Mark of a believing church is that it's a praying church. And the chief mark of a believer is that they are a praying person, a person whose faith causes them to flee to God in prayer and to leave to God the answer. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, Pray that in your grace you would cause that word to be written in our hearts and that you would help us, Lord, as a people here who have in recent days cause, had cause to fly to your throne because of challenges we've faced and burdens we've borne and questions we've had, that you would make us a praying people, constantly coming back to you, constantly casting ourselves on you, looking to you alone for our protection and to you alone for our guidance. We pray this in Jesus' strong name. Amen.